thanks everybody for being here for our very special Big Time Talker podcast in conjunction with Zoom into Books and our friends at Headline Books. And yes, indeed, David Fisher is our guest today. Uh, he's sold uh, over two dozen New York Times bestsellers, over 80 books in total. The new book is called The Executive Order. I've got it right here from St. Martin's Press. And uh, it's set in Washington, D.C., where I am in the near future. So they say it's one of those one step ahead of the headlines thrillers. Hey, David, thanks for being here from uh, New York City today. Well, thank you for having me. You write a lot. I mean, you write all the time. And I'm wondering how it is that you decided in your life that this is something you wanted to do for a living. Because it's not easy. I mean, this is a tough gig. There's the only two things I ever wanted to do was write and play baseball. And, uh, you know, I've often thought about why. Baseball was easy. You know, it was fun. Sure. <clears throat> and when I was growing up on Long Island, uh, <laughs> we had up in our attic, there was a huge pile of time, of life, uh, you know, look, Saturday evening posts, Collier's McCall. There, It was like a big pile and it had a wonderful smell. And I would go up there and I would literally lay on the pile and look at the pictures. Uh, and there also, for whatever reasons, there was an old Royal Standard typewriter up there. And I was, a, how old could I have been? Four, five, six. And I taught myself to type on that typewriter because I loved the sound. I loved the feel. Um, and then there was a TV show called The Big Story about journalists. And it looked like fun. So at very early, I decided I was going to be a journalist. And then I decided I was going to be a sports writer. Um, and it all just came together. I was very fortunate. But baseball, you gave up baseball. <laughs> well, I was, I've actually been fortunate enough to write about baseball. Um, in that, and I've had a number of bestsellers. I did a series of books with an umpire named Ron Luciano that actually got to be number one in the country. And in fact, it's, that was the, um, the uh, early 80s, and it's being republished this year, uh, which, is, which is nice. And Ronnie was a wonderful person. I wrote with Tommy Lasorda, who's in the Hall of Fame. What was that like? What is Lasorda like? Um, Tommy is, Tommy was yeah. a force onto his, his own. He, was, he used to tell this great story. Um, the, doc, the Dodgers team doctor was a guy named Bill Bueller. And before every game, Bill Bueller would run laps around the stadium. And, and he was thin and he was in great shape. And Tommy was, Tommy no. was not. <laughs> Tommy used to say, you know, you look at Bill. He said, when Bill dies, he's going to be lying there in an open coffin. And people are going to look at him and say, gee, Bill looks great. When I die, they're going to look at me and say, gee, Tommy looks terrible. So, <laughs> so, you know, Tommy was just a treat, just a, a, a man's man. And, um, you know, you think about him. And the other part of him was that Tommy had uh, a, a son who was gay, um, who was one of the early AIDS victims. Hmm. 
And you would think that Tommy being a man's man, uh, how he might respond to that. And in fact, it was exactly the opposite. You'd be wrong. Wow. He always brought his son. He always brought his son into the clubhouse. Um, he, you know, it was always "I love you, son," hugging and kissing. And uh, and when when he was diagnosed with AIDS, Tommy borrowed Mike Milken's airplane, and they flew around the world looking for anything. So you know, the nice part about being a writer is you kind of get access to these experiences where you meet people when they're not on stage and you get to know about them and, and, and learn about them and see what their fiber is. And that's a, that's a real example with Tommy. You've written a lot of books with other people. Your new book, the executive order is a fiction novel, um, but it draws on that journalism background. I want to rewind back to, uh, to do you remember the very first time you were paid to write something, your first paid gig and what it was? I was at Syracuse University and I got a job covering high school sports for the Syracuse Herald Journal as a freshman. And I got paid $5 a game. And I remember I went out and covered the game and I ran back to the newsroom and I'm typing away and they're on deadline and the sports editor, Arnie Burdick said, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And I said, I'm retyping it for neatness. So, and he yanked it out of the typewriter and, uh, and I got my $5. But I, you know, somebody told me once, uh, that the best advice for any writer, and I think this extends to almost anything, is that when the phone rings, the answer is yes. And I've seen over and over, I've seen people being self-defeating by, you know, when somebody asks, can you do this? The answer is yes. No, you can always get to know. But when somebody is calling and offering you money, the answer is yes. And and uh, so, you know, $5 at that point was, and when I was in college, was I, that made a difference. Step in the right direction. And now, uh, fast forward to 2021, your brand new book, uh, The Executive Order from St. Martin's Press. You've written a, a couple of dozen bestsellers. Uh, and by the way, we need to thank our, our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau for bringing David into a Zoom into Books and our Big Time Talker podcast. Uh, tell people about the inspiration for the executive order and maybe a, a cliff note version of what they can expect when they read it. I love this. <clears throat> it, uh, it's a thriller and it's an edge of your seat. It's a, a, what I call a page turner. But in your words, tell me you know, the genesis of that book. Well... I've um, been involved in writing about politics for a long time. Um, I did a book with, I wanted to understand how Congress works. So I did a book with a congressman named Robert Wexler, who at the time was the most liberal member of Congress. Conversely, I also wrote Donald Trump's campaign book, for the 2016 campaign. So 
and I've worked with other people on both sides of the political spectrum, because I think knowledge is a pretty important thing. A, a publisher, Tom Dunn, who was one of the legendary publishers, approached me a couple of years ago and uh, asked me if I would be interested in doing an updated version of a book called It Can't Happen Here, which was Sinclair Lewis's 1936 novel about fascism coming to America? The answer was yes. Um, I've written fiction quite successfully before um, and combining fiction, a story and uh, politics was something I love. And I've also written a lot of humor and had good success with, with humor. Um, and I went and I got a copy of It Can't Happen Here and read it and were thinking I could use it as a model. And it was long and it was dry. <laughs> and it was it was just a, a, a polemic. You just kept reading it because I guess the specter of fascism in 1936 was a, something people wanted to know about. But as a model, it didn't work. Because what people like to read are page turners. Right. They like action adventure. So um I decided I was going to make this an action adventure story set against the world of politics. But more than that, what happens next? And um, I did not want it to be an anti-Trump book, which it is not. I did not want it to be an anti-Democrat book, whoever that nominee was at that point. And uh, we took a shot. And we made the nominee Biden, and we made him president. And it all worked out. Uh, and it worked out. Believe me, I was sweating election night and after. But it takes place after both of them. And I did a book once with Glenn Beck. And I might not have done that book, except the book that Glenn Beck wanted to do and the book that we did basically said, we can't go on this way. We have to figure out how we're going to get together, how we're going to, if, if we're not going to agree with each other, at least how we can find a way of going forward. And so with this book, I wondered, what are the consequences if we don't? Where are we going? And so it said in the future, the president is an independent, neither Democrat nor Republican. He is, he basically became president because he was a consensus candidate because nobody, he had, he had done so little that nobody had anything against him. His name is Ian Reitman, the right man for the right time. Um, and he, he was elected president. And several years ago, I was going to do a project with one of the leading lawyers in America. And one of the things we were going to write about is that there are, the real danger is that there are more at this point, more than 700 special uh, orders of the president that are on the books 
more than 700. And the only one that has ever been repealed is the right to put Japanese citizens in internment camps. But those 700 special orders literally under the right circumstances allow the president to suspend the constitution. So now my question, and I've always wanted to bring that to the attention of Americans. My question in this story was how do we get there? What happens to get us to that point? And that's what this book is about. I also enjoyed the fact with certain writers that they take you inside an environment. Um, you know, we, we've seen, you know, I, I read um, authors from around the world. Um, I read about detectives in North Korea. Uh, and you get a sense of the environment. And I know that people like that. So I was looking for a different environment. And I have a very close friend who has spent his whole life in a wheelchair. And he, years ago, sensitized me to what he goes through every day. Um, as he says, if you want to get a drink of water, you walk to the sink or wherever and you get a drink of water. If I want to get a drink of water, I have to say, can I reach a glass? If I reach a glass, can I reach the faucet to fill it with water? Can I pick it up and put it somewhere? Can I turn the water off? He says, and I have to do that for everything in my life. So I made my, I made my hero, um, a, a man named Raleigh Stone, the Rolling Stone, put him in a wheelchair and he is a wounded warrior. And he is the first action adventure hero in a wheelchair. But not just in any wheelchair, because you always think movie when you're doing these things. Sure. He is in a, a chair he calls Mighty Chair. And Mighty Chair is fixed. It's really, it's fixed up. It has, it can do stuff. It's got a computer system. It can really do stuff. But every single thing it can do, you could do this afternoon on a sure. wheelchair. There's nothing out of the way. And part of it is there, the chair is, in a sense, becomes a character. Um, not to give too much away, but at one point, um, Raleigh is meeting someone in a garage. And while he's in a garage, something happens, and he has to make his getaway. And he is literally chased down the spiral of the parking garage by a car in his chair. So we use the chair as a real character throughout the book. And what I've tried to do is, is bring readers just a little bit into that world of what disabled people go through. You know, there are more than a million people in wheelchairs in this country today. This morning, more than a million people got up and spent their life in a chair. And as my friend Brian McLean, or as we call him in the book, Brain McLean, uh, as, uh, as he points out, one of the advantages of being in a wheelchair is people overlook you. They Literally. don't. They, they, they sort of ignore you. They don't know how to deal with you. So they ignore you and you can get away with stuff. 
<laughs> you know, as, as Brian says, and I, I stole this line from him, he was uh, trying to pick up a girl one day, and his first line to her was, in case you're wondering, the only thing I can't do is dance. <laughs> that that's Raleigh's spirit. Right. And and that's and the book is a series of adventures that he goes through as the government is moving more and more uh becoming more and more suppressive and what he tries to do and how how he does what he does. The book is The Executive Order and uh, David Fisher is our guest today. It's brand new from St. Martin's Press. You can get it wherever books are sold. The uh, the hero in this book, and you said set in the future, we should qualify. It's only set four years in the future, so it feels very contemporary. Um, the hero, this uh, Raleigh Stone, is a, a reporter for a D.C. newspaper. So there are pieces, as I read this book, of all the president's men. There are pieces of uh, John Grisham stories, of, of Tom Clancy stories. You know, it, it's set in that that world and and these big action set pieces that that keep you really interested and involved. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was the, the way you pulled the curtain back on what happens in a newsroom. And you have that journalism background, so it felt very real. Did it take you back a little bit to your days as a journalist when you wrote this book? Well, you know what it, what it did? I loved being in a newsroom. I loved the sound of it. I loved the feel of it. I loved it all. And I've been in the modern newsroom, which is very different. Sure. It's, it's quiet. And there are carpets on the floor. And there's TV monitors all over the place. And there's no shouting. And there's no, it's very different. And it reminded me of that. And I had to put myself in that, in that situation. In the, in the modern newsroom where, in fact, people come and go and it's never filled and it's, there's never that deadline tension because people are working remotely now. Um, and it reminded me, I've also, I worked with Mario Andretti, the great race car great driver. driver. Sure. And, and we talked about technology, modern technology, electric cars. And he said to me, he hates it. And he can't, he's going to fight against it in the racing industry as long as he can. And the reason is he loves the sound and he can't imagine the Indy 500 without that incredible roar as the cars come around, come around the track and the high wine and the wine of them. And a newsroom is very much the same thing. It's a, uh, um, it is a place of tremendous energy, and uh, and it is it's very organized chaos, but it's loud and it's fun, and a lot and the loudness is gone, it's gone, and uh, there is no clacking of a typewriter. You're dating yourself just a little bit, but that's all right. the uh, The press has taken a lot of shots in the last several years. And you're a media guy. You started off as a reporter. You said in college, a freshman in college, a kid, did it for a while. Um, is are those shots fair that the press is taking? Um, <clears throat> what has what has happened 
is there has been such a proliferation of news sites that they are all competing for an audience. And you have both niche sites that are competing for a slice of the audience, and you have the larger sites which are trying to just get the bigger numbers. Um, in that, that competition is both good and bad in that it forces um, new sites sometimes to run with stories that they shouldn't run with because they're not checked out sufficiently. Um, the proliferation has also led to a big decline in revenues, which means you have smaller staffs. And if you have a smaller staff, you can't do as much. Um, and the other thing is that I don't think, I don't think in any segment of society, we have fully adjusted to the internet. I think it is such a mammoth change. I think if you, if you look at American history, um, the invention of the automobile, in around 1900 allowed people for the first time to go to the next town. They could get on literally on a bus in 1910 and go to the next town and get a job right? and work in the next town. And it changed the world because you didn't have to date the girl next door. You could date a girl in another town. And that led to the Roaring Twenties, the ability to, to, to uh, move about quickly, long spaces, changed the world because it gave us access to the next town and the next city. Nothing like that happened until the Internet. <clears throat> and the Internet, oh, and by the way, when, when the car was invented, we were a society of horses. And we, every town had stables and cobblers. And the creation of the car meant that was all going out of business. And we had to build roads and we had to create places for people to get gas when they weren't, we had to do it all. And now the internet comes along. And the internet, again, doesn't just give you access to the next town. It gives you instant access to anyone in the world. And you don't even need a road to get there. And you don't need a gas station. And so the adjustment, what, what I think we've done so far is we've taken the internet and was kind of fitted onto existing society as opposed to understanding what it really does and creating new societies. Oddly enough, what we're doing right now, Zoom, that kind of, uh, of app is, you couldn't do this anywhere else. You know, with television, I always felt television with radio with pictures. It was a more enlightened, entertaining version of radio. There's nothing like what we're doing right now, talking to multiple people at the same time. And I'm not sure that we have figured out how best to utilize that. And I'm, I am completely sure the media hasn't figured it out yet. So coming back to the question about 
newspapers uh, and things like that. Um, they are just beginning to figure out what to do, how to do it, uh, and using the internet. I subscribe both to the uh, physical newspapers and the same, the same newspapers online because I sort of think it's my duty to support them. But I also subscribe to the Washington Post, even though I'm in New York. And, and I know that the, which is extraordinarily hopeful, um, the New York Times has reported its largest circulation gain in history hmm. um, online, not online history, in all its largest circulation gain. The New York Times is beginning to prosper, as is the Washington Post. Right. At, at the same time, <clears throat> last year, the publishing industry sold more hardcover books than audiobooks for the first time in a decade. Well, that's and, a and, and sold a great number of books. And so we're beginning to see uh, media companies understand how, how to utilize this tool economically. Now, the next question is, can they utilize the tool in any kind of beneficial way? Uh, you know, your first question is, can we trust the media? And the answer is they make a lot of mistakes. Um, and they're never going to be as quick as the internet in reporting, develop, or television in reporting, developing news. But what they can do is give you background in depth and they're beginning to figure it out. Um, my problem with the excuse me, my problem with the Times every day, the hardcover version, the hard version of the Times, is it takes too long to read. There's so much good, entertaining stuff about so much in there that I, you, you know, it, it, I need to put an hour aside. So I will read that online more than I will read the physical version, only because I can do it faster and get directly what I need to get to. Right. It's a sea change uh, for certain. And uh, David Fisher is our guest today on Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast, the new book, The Executive Order, a fiction novel set just a couple of years in the future. It's uh, an action adventure story. Raleigh Stone is a DC reporter. He's in a wheelchair, certainly doesn't stop him from getting things done. Uh, so if you're looking for a great summer read, it's that. I want to shift gears and ask you about this whole other facet of writing that you do where you write with other people. And in many cases, they're really high profile people. So uh, I want to also give folks an opportunity. If you're watching right now on Facebook Live or on YouTube, and you'd like to ask David Fisher a question, type it into us. It'll pop up on my screen and I'll be happy to, to pose that question uh, to David. Uh, but but a, a sort of a technical question for, for folks who are writers, when you write these books with other people, are you the ghostwriter? Are you the co-author? Are you the author? What are you? What is your function? And what's the difference in all that? I've been, I've been all of it. Um, I think the difference probably is ego. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I um, I'm fortunate in that I've never really had a large ego. 
Um, many years ago, I did a, uh, if I can editorialize a little, I did a, wonderful, a wonderful book with George Burns called Gracie. And Gracie was one of the top 10 selling books of the 1980s. And, um, and it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful book. And, and I said to him, I said to George, uh, we're not going to put my name on the book. It's by George Burns. Because this is, you're writing about Gracie. And anything else, and it's a, it was called Gracie, a love story. And I felt another name on that cover would be an intrusion. And let people think George wrote it, you know, from his heart. I didn't, it didn't bother me. However, when we did a sequel, which was called All My Best Friends, uh, I wanted my, which was about all of these people that the, George and Gracie grew up with in vaudeville and the history of early radio and the history of television. I wanted my name on that book. And the publisher really gave me a hard time. And I said, no, I want my name on that book. So it, it takes every form. Um, and at, at this point, because I have been fortunate enough, it doesn't really make a difference to me. Um, and if, if somebody says, I want my name on the book, by, that's okay with me. I don't, I haven't run into a lot of people like that. Um, and again, it, it takes the form of what the book is. Leslie Nielsen and I did a parody of a movie star autobiography <laughs> called, called The Naked Truth, in which uh, the dedication, Leslie Dedicate says, to the movie industry, the only business in the world in which the trailer comes first. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and we made up Leslie's whole. We made up this wonderful character. We had pictures. We had everything. Well, that was by Leslie Nielsen and David Fisher. And uh, you know, um, um, conversely, there's been uh, um, other people who did not want to share the byline, and that was that was fine with me. It it just doesn't. It doesn't. You know, it, if, you, if you start doing collaborations and you have an ego, you're in the wrong business because you, it, it ain't about you. Right. It's about may, allowing the person you're working with to present themselves to the world in the way they would if they were a writer. Um, and doing it in the most entertaining way. So when a when a reader walks into a bookstore and he sees a book by a high profile individual, movie star, TV star, politician, whatever, um, do they ever write their own books? And if not, let's pull the curtain back on on Oz here just a little bit and tell me uh, how how that works. You know what what is the the actual process? You said, you know, you, you with George Burns, you know, how involved are these people? What does it actually look like? So first question, how often do they actually really write their own books? Never? I would say almost never. Uh, I, I, I have never been in a situation where somebody, where I knew about somebody writing their own book. 
because that's a very particular skill set. It's something that you have honed as a craft for 40 some years. Yeah, and, and I think people don't quite understand that when you think of a book, you really have to think of a whole package. It isn't just then it happened. Uh, it is uh, um, a presentation of events in the most entertaining way. And, and, and you need a strong beginning. Um, you need a good, you, you need certain things. And if you haven't done it, you just don't know what it is, what works. Yeah, you gotta have a climax. You have to have a storyline. So, so when you sat down with George Burns, and, and if I can, I'd like to tick through some of the other names. But when you when you do that process, is it a conversation that you have with them, and and you take notes? Do you record them? How how do you do that? How do you condense a guy like George Burns who lived a hundred years? How do you get that life? Well, <clears throat> you do several things, it's, and obviously, it's not George. It's Terry Bradshaw and I have done several books. William Shatner and I have done several books. You know, I try, I, you'd form a relationship and, 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 and do more than, than one project. You try and think in long-term. Okay. The, the way I start is I start by making myself as knowledgeable as possible about the entire area the person I'm dealing with uh, has lived their life. Then I go and I tape record everything. I have, I have hundreds of tapes with the most amazing people telling stories in my basement. <laughs> I, have, I have George Burns singing when it's Russia Shona time in Dixie on tape. I, you know, I have Johnny Cochran talking about his own feelings about the Simpson killing. I mean, right. all of it. Mafia people telling me their stories. Uh, so we sit and I do 20, 30, sometimes more hours of transcript. And uh, the only notes I take are just little one word things to remind myself when someone says something to follow up. I don't want to interrupt them, but I do want to follow up. So I like to make a note to myself, right. where to go next. And oddly enough, I don't, I don't remember much of the interviews when they're done because I haven't been listening to remember them. I've been listening to know where to go next. And then I get the tapes transcribed. Early on, I was able to do it by myself, but now I'm able to have other people do it. And I form, I get index cards and I make a card file by subject um, because I know I'm going to talk about a certain uh, thing that happened in their life several different times. I'm going to approach it from several different directions. And so even in the transcription, it's going to be on different pages. So I make a card file and the card file might just be somebody else's name. And then every time that person refers to them, I'll highlight it with a yellow highlighter and I will put the page number and a quick idea of what they're talking about. So I know where it is. And sometimes it'll be four or five different page numbers. But what that also does is it puts, puts all the material in my mind. 
And then I start writing. And I will tell you, it is never, ever a, well, I'm sorry, I don't start writing yet. I do research. I go and I get newspaper clippings, books, things like that. And I make a separate card file on colored cards. So I know which one refers to printed material and which one refers to transcripts. And that printed, a lot of times there'll be newspaper articles, it'll be books, uh, it'll be all kinds of things. But again, it'll be by subject. And sometimes it'll be the same subject. Often it'll be the same subject that I have on the white cards. Right. And then I start writing. And by then I really know what material I have because I've been through it three times now in my mind. And anyone, I, I guess there are writers who write roughly verbatim. I'm not, and I never have been. What I try to do and what I have been very successful doing is writing in character. Um, the thing about Gracie, while all the material is accurate, what I basically did is wrote, written, is, is write a stand-up comedy act for George with jokes that I wrote, with, you know, with stories that George didn't tell me that came out of a newspaper article from 1934 that I simply put in his words. And you listen you know, if you, it's, if I have a talent, that's my talent. I am able to reproduce somebody's voice, somebody's public voice on paper. And, and um, so when you read these books, it sounds like the person you want it to be. And that's really the skill. And I'll tell you the, the hardest person I ever worked with to do that oddly enough, was Barbara Walters. Really? And the reason it was hard, it was difficult, is even though Barbara Walters' voice and accent is so well known, she speaks perfect English. She speaks in complete sentences. There's no hemming and hawing. And so there's no... You know, with George would make wisecracks. You know, Terry Bradshaw could be Terry Bradshaw. You know, and and uh, whoever is Shatner is a character, and I could write in that character, and he loved it, and yeah. he went along with it. Barbara Walters was Barbara Walters, and very difficult to capture on the page. So, it sounds like. And maybe I'm wrong because this is not what I do for a living. It's what you do for a living that writing a fiction book, writing the executive order, be a hell of a lot easier. I mean, you've got a whole thing with the colored cards and the research and the this and the that and the different personalities. Is is writing a fiction novel that all comes out of up here, out of your head, is that easier? It's much harder. Really? Much harder. Tell me. When you're working with an entertainer, a performer, a celebrity, the reason they are doing a book is the audience already exists for them. 
And I know going in what the audience wants to know. And my job is to make sure they know it and deliver it in an entertaining way. A novel, a novel, there, there are, you can do anything. You can go anywhere. You can do it. You can create any characters you want. There are no limits. Right. And there are two, two parts to a novel. There is the writing and there is the storytelling. And I know some wonderful writers. I mean, really terrific writers who don't know how to tell a story and have never been successful at it. You know, and conversely, I look at some of the most successful writers in this country. Um, you know, I look at a, uh, a Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy, I think, wrote half of one of the great, great books. Uh, I'm sorry, not the, Tom Clancy wrote a great book. The Hunt for Red October is as good a read as you are ever gonna get. And his second book, which was, I think, called, was, was Cardinal of the Kremlin, he ran out of energy and he ran out of plot um, later in that book. Tom Clancy was never a great writer but he sure was a great plotter. I mean, you could not put down a Tom Clancy book. Uh, it's the same John Grisham, who was, I started to refer to. The first half of The Firm is as good as it gets. And I just thought, for me at least, it fell apart because he didn't really know where to go and it became very predictable. And after that, it was all very formulaic. And so when you're starting, and, and you know, you're talking about incredibly successful writers uh, who are, you know, whatever you think about Grisham as a writer, I don't, th I think Scott Thoreau, who writes in that same field, is a terrific writer and a great storyteller. Well, I, I, well, I think Grisham, is a great storyteller and you enjoy it, but I don't think he's a particularly gifted writer. Uh, I know that sounds like blasphemy, but <laughs> anyway, so when you set out to do a novel, you set out knowing it requires writing and, and it requires um, a story that engages people, that keeps people turning, turning the page. I, uh, I wrote a novel many years ago. Um, I read a little clipping in a newspaper about a British, rather in a book called Game of the Foxes, about a British magician named Jasper Maskelyne who used the techniques of stage magic against Rommel in the Western desert. Well, I got incredibly intrigued by that. I moved to London um, for six months and I did a, a novel based on that story. And the novel did, it did well, um, but it has been under option for 30 years. Wow. And right now is about, they actually, Benedict Cumberbatch is going to star and they actually, they have a script and they've actually announced the director. So it looks like it may happen. The problem with that book 
is it was such a great story that I wanted to get everything in there. So it builds, it comes right up. It really starts well and goes to a, a pretty good level. And then it stays there. No ups, no downs. It was, and then this happened next. And, and then the big finish. Because I didn't know enough about writing a novel at that time. And if I were rewriting that book, I would take a lot of that stuff out that's in there. Uh, and I would continue to build, which is what we've done. We've continued to raise the stakes in executive order. It gets the dangers, what's happening to the country, and the stakes for Raleigh personally get higher and higher and higher. And the rules that I made for myself is that everything that happens in this book politically has to be real. It, this has to be a threat. What can happen? And every single thing that happens in this book is plausible and possible, as extreme as it seems. The book so, is The Executive Order. It's from St. Martin's Press, available now. Great read. Uh, a beach read is something you take on vacation this summer and, and not put it down. All right. We're almost out of time. We're going to play uh, play a little game with you, David. You get your, your brain working here. I'm going to throw out a couple of folks that you have uh, done books with. I want you to give me the first word or phrase that comes to mind. These are all books that David Fisher has co-authored, co-written, been a part of, been the man behind the curtain. Johnny Cochran. Word or phrase? Johnny Cochran was one of the few men who is missed in this world every day because there are so few people able to appeal to both to all aspects of American society and have credibility. And Johnny was one. People don't remember Johnny was the number three ranking guy in the LA police department. He wasn't just a defense lawyer. He was the lawyer for the LA police department. Johnny Cochran's son is a cop. People forget this kind of stuff. Johnny Cochran not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. We could use him today in ways that are incredible, incredibly difficult to fathom. There's no one who fills that gap. Terry Bradshaw. A delight. Terry Bradshaw is exactly, when you're sitting in his living room, he is exactly what you want him to be. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, you mentioned uh, Glenn Beck. Word or phrase about Glenn Beck? Glenn Beck is one of the most knowledgeable people I have ever met. I have this love of uh, esoterica, strange little things, and so does he. And while I, we often did not come to the same conclusion with the same set of facts, I loved being with him because I loved watching how his mind works, and I loved learning how people who felt differently than I do, people who were equally as smart as I am and maybe smarter, reached the conclusion 
very differently than I did. I, I, I learned from Glenn Beck. William Shatner. William Shatner is one of the most underrated actors of our time and one of the most decent human beings. Um, we've done three books together and I've pretty much seen everything that he's appeared in. And because of his creation of Captain Kirk, he gets put down as uh, almost a hack actor. William Shatner is a brilliant actor. And if you look at the body of his work, you will understand what an incredible actor he is. And you understand Kirk is the creation of, of Shatner. He isn't the extent of Shatner's talent. Learned something new. Okay. Bill O'Reilly. Well, we really didn't work together. What happened was Bill O'Reilly was doing uh, a, uh, a TV series called Legends and Lies. And I was brought in to do the book version. And I actually did all my own research based very loosely on the shows. And those books go a lot further than, um, than the books go much further into history. Now, Bill O'Reilly and I share a love of history. And he would pick the subjects and, and we would have a discussion early on about what these, the importance of, of what he was trying to do in history. And he's sitting, he's doing very much the same thing in the killing series. He's taking you places in history that you didn't know about. So he, I mean, he's a pretty good historian. You talked about George Burns, but give me something about George Burns, a word or a phrase that to help those of us that, that love that guy to, to know about what he was really like. I was, when I was getting to know George, I asked him once, I said, George, what's the story about you and all those young girls? And he looked at me and he said, kid, I'm 93 years old. I'm lucky I can pee on my shoe. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was George divided the world into two people. He divided the world into people he felt had talent and civilians. And if he felt you had talent, you were part of the club. And if he felt you were a civilian, he was always nice and would always sign the autographs, but he didn't relate to you. One more. Uh, 2016, a book came out, it was a bestseller called Crippled America. Donald Trump's name was on the cover of that book. In the acknowledgments, he thanks you profusely. Your name is not on the cover of that book. You wrote that book. Tell me about Donald Trump. Um. <clears throat> Donald Trump, I'm talking to you from New York, and Donald Trump was always a New York character, larger than life. We all know who New York, who Donald Trump was. In a lot of ways, he was the ultimate loudmouth, braggart New Yorker. <clears throat> and I felt uh, running for president was a brilliant public relations ploy. And my only fear was that he was going to drop out before the book was published. <laughs> and little did you know, little did I know. 
And Donald Trump was the most fascinating combination of megalomaniac and desperately insecure person I've ever met in my life. He needed reassurance about everything he did. Uh, at the same time, everything he did was the best. And the thing that he insisted on more than anything else that was in the book was that he wanted pictures of every building that he was associated with in the book. And uh, <clears throat> for a long time, I put that down to ego. And then I understood the brilliance of that in that Donald Trump understands his audience and maybe understands his audience better than anybody I have ever met in my life. And he gives them what they need. He creates the fantasy for them that this is their guy. And this is guy is the richest guy in the world. And he's this and he's that. And some of the buildings that he pictured, the only thing about them was his name was on the building. That was a marketing thing. But as far as that audience was concerned, he owned all of them. Uh, he built them. They were all his idea. And he got that. And I didn't. And I, I, uh, I always felt that was part of his, a great part of his genius. Whether you like him or not, look at where he came from and look at what he has done for good or for bad to this country. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And he's done that out of his psych psychology. He's done that. It's, it's all instinct with him. I mean, people would, I would read stories about his strategy and I would laugh because he didn't have a strategy. He did whatever he thought was the right thing to do at that moment. And that's him. And it, look where it got him. You can't argue with success. Whether you agree with him or not, I don't agree with him about a lot of things, about most things. But I, I actually I look at him and I think he is a, an historic figure. So in that sense, I'm glad I did the book. David Fisher, our guest today. Best of luck with the executive order. Thank you very much. I promise anyone who picks it up, they will do exactly what you said. They'll have a good bee tree. It is all of that. It could be the book of the summer. The executive order from David Fisher, St. Martin's Press is the publisher. Thank you for being here today for Zoom Into Books and uh, also our big time talker podcast. Thanks to our friends who hosted from Headline Books. Thanks to our sponsor, speakermatch.com. Rother David Fisher, I'm Burke Allen. Wherever you go, whatever you do today, make it a great day. Be kind to one another. And thank you very much. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.